Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This is the cosmos, and it's the greatest story science has ever told. Can you see Texas up there on your high horse? I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. Those clips are from Cosmos, which is back, and it's Neil deGrasse Tyson, and it's beautiful. And from True Detective, which is over, and which I thought was beautiful, but we'll talk about that later. Yes, we know many of you are probably not caught up yet on True Detective. The HBO miniseries ended Sunday night, but here's the deal. We're going to talk about it, but we will wait until the end of this episode to save you from spoilers, which we know are the worst. And we'll also give you very ample warning before we start getting all spoilery. Right. We'll give you this warning sound before we start talking about True Detective later. All right. All right. All right. In the meantime, we're talking this week with Emily Pilliton. I want to show young girls that there's a whole toolbox of stuff that can give them confidence and the ability to bring their ideas to life. What's great about this is Emily means a literal toolbox. We'll talk to her about her mission to equip girls with power tools. But first, a conversation with Judy Chaikin. She's the director of a documentary called Girls in the Band, and it's all about women who played instruments in the 50s and 60s in big bands and jazz bands. It came about because a friend of mine called me up and said that she had met a woman who was in her 80s who said that she had been a big band drummer in the 40s. And I said, well, yeah, maybe like a high school band or something, because there were never any women in any of the big bands. And she said, no, this woman insists she had an all-girl big band. So we looked her up on the Internet, and sure enough, we found out that there was an all-girl band that she had led, and they had been somewhat successful in their day. And it started me thinking about, wow, were there really women who were in big bands? That started my research, and before I knew it, I had uncovered some pretty eye-opening things. I had grown up in a musical family, and I had played trumpet and piano as a kid. So I was very well-versed with what the big bands were, and I knew most of the big famous players of the day. And it just didn't make any sense to me that there would ever be a woman anywhere except in front as a singer. There is nothing like the joy of playing music. My name is Clara Bryant. I'm a trumpetiste. Oh, yes, it's always always a surprise to have girl musicians. I'm Viola Smith. I'm a drummer. There were no women with any of the big bands. I was the first one, as far as I know. My name is Billy Rogers, and I played the trumpet. I played with the greatest female band ever, ever. Hi, I'm Rosalind Perron, and I play alto sax, clarinet, and flute. Well, if you don't feel it, forget it, because you can't play jazz unless you feel it in here. My name is Peggy Gilbert, and I play saxophone. 
when I started this, there was nowhere to go to find out anything about them. We had to dig them up one at a time. And they were so thrilled that somebody was telling their story. You know, the Ken Burns thing that he did for PBS on jazz, Mary Lou Williams is mentioned, and that's it. I thought that if there were women who had played in bands, that it was something like girls who'd gotten together out of high school. And the more I studied about it, the more I found out that these women were educated, they went to college, they studied music. Many of them were highly trained and very gifted and did this because they were born to do it. Whether they got success or fame or money or anything wasn't really the driving force. The driving force was they were born to be musicians. We used to sit by the Atwater Kent radio and listen to the music coming out of the hotels around Boston. My dad would take us to the dances and stand outside the, the dance hall with me on his shoulder. And I would look through the window and see the, the trumpet players, and they would be playing the trumpet, you know, and do what, do what, do what, do what. And I, I like that. You can imagine how difficult it was for them. You know, just think of what society was 40 years ago. Think what the social structure was for women. I never ever saw another girl do what I did. I was in my 20s before I even saw any, another girl play a trumpet. So for these women to want to be in what was considered a man's world, they were already looked down upon. And they were treated like they were some kind of a novelty act, like they couldn't possibly be serious musicians who had anything to contribute to the lexicon of music. Well, that was totally false. There were great talents there. I saw women saxophone players once when I was about 11 or 12 years old. My dad read in the paper that at the Metropolitan Theater where they had vaudeville, they had a new act, and because they played the saxophone, he probably thought I would really get a kick out of this. There were the Siamese twins joined at the back all the time on roller skates playing the saxophone. They had to fight their way from the ground up and tooth and nail just to get guys to listen to them, just so that they could listen to them and then make their decision after that about whether they were good enough to play with them. People used to pay me a compliment they thought it was. You play well for a girl. I said, I know some men that sound like girls. I didn't name any names, but there were some. They did some side-by-side -side listening tests in some college classes to see if people could tell who was a man and who was a woman. And of course, they never could. But the thing is, in order to get hired, to even be in a studio situation, or to even get your band recorded, somebody looks at you and says, oh, that's a woman. That you There was a really great trio in New York called Jazzberry Jam. And Jazzberry Jam was three older black women who were all just superb musicians. So they would send their stuff out to recording companies, and then the recording companies would want to have a meeting with them. And then they'd walk in and they'd be three older black women, and that would be the end of it. They just never could get anybody 
to get interested in them. You can find out more about the documentary Girls in the Band, including music from the bands mentioned and how to see the film, on our website, nerdatpodcast.com. Now it's time for our conversation with Emily Pilliton. Emily is already one of the bravest people we know because she teaches eighth graders. She teaches eighth graders how to use saws. Based in Berkeley, Emily not only teaches middle school shop class, she's also got an after school group called Camp H. Camp H is just for tween girls, and it's all about teaching them how to take stuff apart and maybe put it back together. It's for fifth through eighth grade girls, and we just do all kinds of crazy stuff that traditionally most 10-year-old girls have not really been given access to. So we do a lot of welding. We like to set things on fire. I want to show young girls that there's a whole toolbox of stuff that can give them confidence and the ability to bring their ideas to life. That's great because it's a literal toolbox, but also very figurative at the same time. Exactly. I absolutely love this. I think when I was in sixth grade, we got one term of shop and I kind of loved it. And I ended up actually doing some theater stuff behind the scenes because I liked building and liked that challenge. But there was no other opportunity to do that when I went through school. Everything had been sort of stripped away. And I think that's true for a lot of school programs now. They've stripped out shop. They've stripped out these settings where kids can build and learn about math in ways that are not writing an equation over and over again. Is that part of why you wanted to take this back into classrooms? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I think part of the problem with traditional shop class as it has existed and and maybe also part of the reason it doesn't exist as ubiquitously as it used to is that it really was, it was focused on the trades. It was really intended for the kids who weren't going to go to college and it wasn't really a creative space. It was a making space, but it was like, here's this plan to go build a jewelry box, go build it. There wasn't a lot of room for student voice for a kid to say, I want to build this because it's important to me, and I want to figure out how to build it. There was no problem solving in it. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a real need for hands-on education for the shop class type environment, but there's also a need for this creative studio space where kids have the green light to say, this is what's interesting to me, and I want to have all the tools to be able to make it. So we have this tagline, Design, Build, Transform, where we're not only building stuff, but everything we build is designed by students. And then it has this element of transformation beyond just our individual world. I saw there's a line on your website from Camp H that says, I'm a 10-year-old girl. I know how to weld. What can't I do? I feel like that sums it up in such a nice way, you know, just in terms of not only the skill set, but also then the problem solving. It's just, it's lovely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the the little girls, and a lot of it, selfishly, like I remember being that age and I remember feeling like I love going to school and I love math and I love sports, but like, God forbid I say that out loud. You know, you're just at this weird age where social dynamics and hormones become part of the equation. And I've watched girls of that age just kind of shut down and they lose the confidence to say things out loud, big audacious dreams and things that they love. And so, yeah, I've had girls come to our camp and They come in in the morning and they learn how to weld and they walk out and they're like different people. And it's so amazing to witness that. Welding in particular is pretty badass. There's kind of no way around that. When you're a kid and it's like, I get to play with fire, basically. All right. Yeah, I get to fuse metal. That's like some superhero stuff. It's so funny. Like over the summer last year, we were welding outside 
the school gym in the school district parking lot. And so people would, would pull into the lot and park and walk past us, and then they would see the sparks from far away and then get closer and realize it was like a four-foot-two fourth-grade girl. <laughs> and they would do like eight double takes and then come over and like give us this really perplexed look, and then the girl got to explain what they were doing and how welding works and how electricity is part of it. It was just it was awesome. That's such an amazing image. At first, they think it's just forced perspective of some sort, that they're too far away and they're expecting when yeah. they get there, it'll be an adult. I love that. Exactly. So who taught you to build? Where did this spark come from for you? Yeah, you know, I, I sort of, uh, I grew up basically on top of a mountain and I spent my childhood in this house in the middle of the woods where I had some neighbors, but not really, you know, it wasn't like a street where you could go and play football in the middle of the street. So my playground was the forest and I grew up watching MacGyver and like being madly in love with him. And oh my gosh, so I, yes. know, I think I really wanted to be outside and making stuff and doing crazy things. And I played a lot of sports and I was just a really active kid. And I think my, my love for architecture was just a catalyst for, for that. Like I, I sort of fell in love with it because it was the one thing that allowed me to be a nerd about every single subject. Like I was a huge math nerd, but I also loved reading and I loved art and music and sports and, the architecture was this like thing that I discovered where all of those things made sense. Like you have to be good at math, you have to understand materials and natural science and the environment and where a building sits and how water and air flows. But then you also have to understand who are the people that are going to use this building and what's the history of that place and what's the narrative and the politics of the place that you're building. So I love that about architecture. And I think that was when I discovered that it was like this amazing awakening and so my love of building was just it was perfect and when I went to graduate school at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago they have like 50,000 square feet of shop space and the curriculum at the time was so wide open it was basically here's two years and a world-class making space in any material you could possibly imagine go do something amazing that was really I think where it all kind of came together. That's such a beautiful articulation of architecture as the sweet spot in your nerd Venn diagram. I love that. It brings together all of the things you love. <laughs> oh, I'm going to make a t-shirt of that graphic. That's very well. Yeah, the Venn diagram. But there's like six circles, so yeah. Thanks to Emily Pilliton. You can find links to all her projects, including a Kickstarter that's going on right now to help her eighth grade students build their own library at nerdatpodcast.com. Time now for homework. Yes, and it's still safe to listen, True Detective slackers, for a few more minutes. We'll give you that spoiler warning after homework. Speaking of homework, I do just really quickly want to mention something that is very cool from our public radio nerd friend, Katie Herzog. It is the public radio host quiz. This is kind of BuzzFeed style. Which public radio host are you? I just heard that Audie Cornish did not, in fact, get Audie Cornish, which is pretty amazing. (laughs) So check it out. We have a link to that on our website, too. Another piece of homework this week comes from Judy Chaikin, director of Girls in the Band. Find somebody and listen to their music. And if you like it, become a fan of theirs. Support these women. They need recognition. There are so many great, great women musicians out there. I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the Diva Jazz Band, but it's one of the few big bands that is managing to stay together these years because nobody can afford to run a big band. And here's this all-female big band with great arrangements. They just did a whole new album with uh, the great writer Johnny Mandel. 
And, you know, find somebody like that. Listen to them. Become a fan of them and help support this aspect of music. Thanks to Judy Chaikin. I know that after watching the documentary Girls in the Band, I've loaded a lot more music from the International Sweethearts of Rhythm onto my iPhone. And apparently we have extra special homework from our pal Tyler Green. Yes, who we've dubbed Mr. Superlative because he's the sort of nerd who loves things with his whole heart. So Mr. Superlative himself, Tyler, is here. And we didn't come up with this nickname for you. Yeah. This is something other people know about you and know well. Well, I mean, I think it's a thing that is common among a lot of nerds and nerdettes, right? We like things and we share them. And we are very passionate about our liking and our sharing. So it's not like we say, yeah, House Cards is a good show. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Robin Wright is the best in the world. It's like very <laughs> intense, right? It's not just like Robin Wright's a solid actor. It's like the biggest, most elevated superlative-laden statements. So it's not necessarily just me, but I'd like to serve as perhaps a vehicle for all of us. I'm talking to you right now in your ear. Nerds. Nerds. So the first one is actually something that maybe you do to help yourself detox from being so hyped up about all these things that you're so excited about all day long. At some point, you got to go to bed. Right. you got to stop the Netflix binge. Mm-hmm. you got to turn off the HBO Go. Got to get off the Facebook and sleepy time. HBO Go, by the way, is fantastic. And like, the CEO, the best. bless him, says he doesn't care if we steal it. Yeah, he doesn't care. I'm very excited about HBO Go. See, it's already begun. It's already, it's already begun. I can't help it. So how do you unwind and get yourself to a place where you can sleep as humans must, even nerds? Right. So I think nerds in general suffer from fast minds, too. When you get to the end of the day, you're exhausted. That's why we turn on the Netflix. That's why we do our little cocktail lessons under debt. <laughs> well, we have different ways that we calm down, that we ease our anxiety. And for me, my first recommendation here for Mr. Superlative is that I think all of you out there should take a nightly detox bath. What is a detox bath? <laughs> so this started out when I talked English in Korea, ESL in Korea for a year, three or four years ago. And I found the beauty of... I'm going to call it a bathhouse, but it's not a traditional bathhouse that we might think of when we think of that word here. You know, it's a very family-oriented place where you go and there's varying degrees of hot pools and cold pools. And it became this ritual. So you'd go to class and class gets over at nine and you go to the bathhouse and you'd sit in a hot bath. You relax. I mean, this is a hot bath, right? Super hot. Calm down. Go into the cold bath. Done. And then you are in a mood. You're just ready to chill. You're relaxed. Certain scientific things happen to your body. As I moved back to Chicago, the city moved faster. I was poorer than I was when I was in (laughs) Korea, and I was more stressed out. So the level of stress was at such a height, and I didn't have insurance, so I wasn't taking the meds or doing any of those (laughs) things that people do. I couldn't afford a therapist, but I could afford to buy three ingredients. These three ingredients are Epsom salts, Mm -hmm. lavender oil, and baking soda. Okay. And I found this out just reading website Ways to Calm Down, right? So it's just one <laughs> just, of the websites. Yeah, that I just website. I love picturing you furiously typing <laughs> in the phrase to calm down. Ways to Calm Down. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh because we can't cry. So, so anyway, I, I try this, right? And so what you do is you turn the lights off. You maybe light a couple candles. You create a space for yourself at the end of the day. Okay? You get the water as hot as you can. Like okay. I am not as hot as you can tolerate because you want to sweat. This mm-hmm. is a sweat detoxification process. As the water's going, you dump in the two cups of Epsom salts. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a kicker. When you get to that second cup of Epsom salts, 
drop in the scented oils in the second cup. Okay. Because if you've ever put scented oils in water, you notice that the oil floats at the top. We don't want that. We want it to be in the water. So as you drop the 10 oils in the second cup, you let it soak into the salts, and then you dump it in. Swirl that around. It'll be hot. Be careful. Do Swirl I need it around. a ladle or something with Well, me? what I have is a measuring cup. And then what you want to also do is if you don't have a purification system on your bath, which most people I know don't, you want to drop in half a cup to a cup of baking soda. What that's going to do is neutralize the water for you, make it a little better for your skin. And then you just sit in there for 20 minutes. You turn the candles on. I've quite honestly, not just saying it because I'm sitting here talking to you, but I listen to Nerdette. It's the perfect <laughs> length for a bath, right? You listen That's to- what we're going for, Yeah, it's bath hour. It's the length of your bath. Bath hour. how we hour. craft our show. So you do that, and I do it every night. That's probably excessive, but um, it obviously can improve your circulation, your concentration, helps your muscles. Your body detoxes naturally, right? It's constantly detoxifying. So what you're doing in this concentrated 20-minute period is you're saying, okay, body, let's speed it up, and you're pushing it out. You're pushing the toxins out faster. I definitely recommend the candles, though, because then that just adds a whole other thing to it. It's your space, you know, and right. it's like the best, you guys. It is the best. He talks right. bath. I'm telling you, folks, when you get out of the bath, you feel like a million dollars. The only thing you want to do is sleep. You know, for, so for me, it's like, oh, but I want to do this one more thing. I don't know. I'm going to bed now. Oh, I got to do this one more thing because your brain's always moving. I want to watch True Detective. Last night, literally, my boyfriend's like, want to watch True Detective? I'm like, I'm going to go take a bath. And he knows when I say, Tyler's taking a bath, it's over. You know, we're not going to watch True Detective. He's going to bed. Thanks to the most amazing, best ever, Mr. Superlative, Tyler Green. His podcast about arts in Chicago is called General Admission, and you can find him on Twitter at Story Producer. Remember that the surefire way to get a gold star, nerds, is not just to do your homework, but to call Nerdette and give us some homework. Tell us what you're nerding out about these days. What should we be watching, reading, playing, trying? Call us at 312-600-5638. Seriously, we just aired a conversation with a bath nerd. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. That was your spoiler alert warning. From here on out, this episode of Nerdette Podcast will be full of spoilers for HBO's True Detective, the miniseries that wrapped up this weekend. If you haven't watched it yet and you want to avoid getting spoiled on this show, good luck, Godspeed, and we'll see you next week. Anyone else who doesn't care about spoilers or has seen True Detective, come on, come on, come on. We're going to talk about it. Trisha, I'm so excited to finally get to speak to you. We've been waiting until we were in front of microphones to have this conversation. So I think a couple of episodes ago, I might have called this a murder mystery miniseries. But in the end, I think it really is about a relationship between these two deeply flawed police officers. It's funny because the initial phrase I would think of is buddy cop, but it's not slapstick or hilarious or any of those things that you're normally used to. This is the darkest buddy cop TV show movie miniseries thing that I've ever seen. And my confusion just now I'm realizing in how to describe it is one of the things I love about it, which is we knew from the start this was going to be eight hours of TV. I would love to see more of Matthew McConaughey as this character, Rust Cole. I thought he was intriguing and totally bizarre. But at the same time, I'm so grateful that it is only eight episodes because as a result, it is truly a perfectly executed story, which is so nice to see on TV. Greta, I actually disagree. I was very disappointed with the finale and the wrap up of this story. Really? What's your problem? Like you said, I felt like the first seven episodes were a character-driven 
exploration into the madness that can come with trying to work in law enforcement and find good in the world when what you're surrounded by is so often the darkest parts of humanity. And also a story about two people who were sniffing out a giant conspiracy. They took us along for a ride that made us think we were going to unseat some people from power or at least expose them for being really horrible human beings. But instead of seeing a takedown of the Tuttle family or major figures in law enforcement, what we got was, to me, the ending of pretty much every serial killer procedural episode that exists in every other TV show. I've seen that story a dozen times. I hadn't seen the first seven episodes of True Detective ever before in that format, that type of storytelling. And then at the end of the seventh episode, they reveal who the killer is, and we spend the last hour chasing a serial killer through the woods and killing him without getting to the bottom of the conspiracy. I was very frustrated by that. I see what you mean, but I feel like if they had unseated the entire conspiracy, it would have been tied up in such a pretty little bow. All this moral ambiguity with the two detectives at the center of this went away in the last episode, where it became a battle of good versus evil, and we got to just root for the good guy cops to kill the crazy serial killer without any of that ambiguity left which had made it so juicy. But by the end, it wasn't the moral ambiguity that made it compelling. It was their relationship. And that solidified in such a beautiful way in the last episode. I will say I thought the last 10 minutes or so were pretty heavy handed and kind of super tacky. But they finally talked about Maggie. They finally dealt with their own ridiculousness and sort of admitted to each other that they do need each other in this really absurd way. And I think that relationship in the grand scheme of this story has a higher value than whether or not they're able to acknowledge that it's a conspiracy. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't convinced you. I guess I just really wanted more depth from the reveal. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Because it was, I mean, at the end of the seventh episode, you knew who it was. And you're like, oh, yeah, that guy they've been talking about for all of these episodes. There he is. He was really creepy when we saw him in the second episode or whatever that was. But I think their argument would be that, like, sometimes in life, you just don't get the big reveal and you have to be happy with the little steps that you made towards progress, whatever that is. Eh, okay. I mean, I would still definitely recommend True Detective on HBO to anyone who loves a good mystery and a bad buddy cop relationship. But I'm still a little disappointed with the last hour. To tell us what you thought about True Detective or what we should be watching now that it's over, call us 312-600-5638. Thanks to our guests, Emily Pelleton of Studio H and Judy Chaikin, director of Girls in the Band. Thanks also to Tyler Green, a.k.a. Mr. Superlative. Thanks to Joe Dassault for his production help. And thanks to our home stations, WBEZ and WCQS. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Throw us some stars if you're feeling generous. Because if you look at the stars, there used to be nothing but darkness, and now get the light in the dark. And the- <laughs> yeah, see, that was the worst. <laughs> it should have just ended when they flipped each other off in the hospital. That should have been the end. <laughs> Our theme music is New Old Toys by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. 
and listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.